Hi, I'm Josh Chang, your host, and you're listening to the Precision Guided Podcast, the Georgetown Security Studies Review's official podcast covering all things national security, military, foreign policy, and history. Welcome to our first pilot episode, and we're so glad you're here to join us today. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Sam Seitz. Sam's a doctoral candidate in the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Oxford. He holds an MA in BSFS from Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service, where he studied international politics, European studies, and security studies. Sam has previously worked for the British Ministry of Defense, the BMW Center for German and European Studies, and recently concluded a stint serving as the editor-in-chief of the Georgetown Securities Studies Review. His areas of interest broadly include alliance politics, international political economy, proliferation, status-seeking, and the intersection of comparative politics and international relations. Sam, uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast and uh, looking forward to interviewing you here. Hey, Josh. Yeah, I'm really excited to... uh get to feature on the on the pilot episode and, and help you kick things off. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very, uh, very eager to, to uh, discuss all, all manner of security issues with you in the next, uh, next hour or so, I guess. Yeah, for sure. So Sam, I guess first question to start us off with is, um, yeah, so just obviously many of your interests lie around the security studies field. You've got a lot of breadth and width of experience. So yeah, just walk us through what, what got you interested in the field of security studies? Like what got you in this game, so to speak? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I think, uh, I guess like many people my age, I had some like distant connections with uh, people that, you know, served in World War II. So growing up, I had sort of just a sort of childish fascination with the military. Um, And then as I got older, uh, particularly in middle and high school, I did a policy debate and there was a lot of sort of basic social science concepts. And I learned that political science, security studies, economics, a bunch of these kind of uh, fields that try to understand human behavior, uh, but also things like conflict exist in an academic setting. And so that really kind of set me up uh, and directed me toward Georgetown for my undergraduate, um, because I was very keen on getting sort of a better grasp of the literature and studying these uh, these kind of military concepts and political science concepts in a more rigorous and structured way. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it was a, it was a combination of my, my grandfather and uh, debate that really pushed me in this direction, I think. Yeah, that's awesome. And um... Obviously, yeah, I mean, we mentioned your bio, you're doing your PhD at Oxford. And uh, yeah, um, was there a particular point in your security studies journey where you just had that aha eureka moment where like, this is it, like, I need to become, I need to become a professor, I need to sort of, yeah, like not only just study these topics, but to teach it and to sort of proliferate more knowledge and research in this area. Where did that point come for you? Yeah, that's, that's a, a really interesting question. Um, so, so to, to to one point of clarification, I guess before we're going forward, is that I I'm actually not 100% sure that I will go into academia uh, full time. Um, so it's still a bit up in the air. So I, I can't I can't honestly tell listeners that uh, there's a point where I decided that I wanted to be a professor per se. But I do think sort of uh, living through the 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 2016 election in particular, um, not even so much about like Trump versus Clinton or the actual politics of it, but I think. There's a lot of sort of interesting uh, sort of observations that I made where I think a lot of people are just a bit, you know, almost like rationally ignorant about a lot of foreign policy issues. And I think that's understandable because, um, you know, day to day, going through your life, you're probably not 
not going to have to worry about things like nuclear proliferation or terrorism or that kind of stuff. Um, but I, it sort of it, it, it instilled in me sort of a, a passion to really uh, educate people that were interested and use my uh, my knowledge uh, to to try to spread sort of my passion and knowledge about the the topics that I think are both important to the U.S. and its allies, but also uh, sort of you know even day to day, even though it was not necessarily obvious. And so I thought to do that, I needed to sort of be able to contribute directly, not just regurgitate sort of research that I read, and also be able to sort of critically evaluate uh, the claims and evidentiary basis for sometimes uh, some arguments in policy circles in DC that I think are um, maybe theoretically plausible, but they're underspecified uh, in terms of how they're actually evaluated. I think there's a lot of partisanship and sort of uh, half-baked arguments that float around the DC Beltway. And so having a background in sort of rigorous academic training uh, to, to critically evaluate those kind of claims and intelligently uh, add my own voice to it is something that's very valuable. Uh, so yeah, I think that's that was probably the point at which I, I was pretty pretty directed down the sort of PhD uh, master's uh, direction. No, for sure, yeah, and definitely respect that path. And I guess knowing you, Sam, I guess having been in some classes together during our Georgetown undergrad days, I know that for you, I think for you, like, you're probably one of the most avid readers I know. I feel like every time I walked into the classroom, you always had a book on the table um, just on some random historical or like political topic. And um, I guess, yeah, in the, on that sort of line of thought, what, uh, if you sort of had like an NBA starting lineup, sort of like favorite authors, favorite books that you'd recommend to our listeners, what would that be? Hmm, that's a really good question. Um, so I have sort of, um, so the way that I approach books is that I try to find things that I think have staying power insofar as I think there's a lot of sort of sensationalist tabloidy kind of books that get put out um, that are relevant in the moment, uh, you know, some revelation about a politician or some, you know, Russian activity in the, you know, an election interference or Crimea or something. Um, and I think those are valuable, but I think generally those can be consumed as sort of long form articles or journal articles in an academic sense. So books, uh, I sort of have a bias toward things that are a bit more theoretical or sort of historical and I think will retain their value many years in the future because I do like to hold on to my books. So I want them, I wanna get my money's worth out of them, I guess. Right, yeah. Um, so in terms, of, uh, in terms of authors, that's a very, uh, very good question. Um, I, I, I honestly, I can't name one single person uh, because I do read very broadly and a lot of uh, stuff outside of political science. Uh, but I would say in terms of some of the formative books that I've read uh, within sort of the security studies field, I think Caitlin Talmadge's book, uh, The Dictator's Army is extremely interesting. Um, I'm personally very interested in sort of force planning uh, and military procurements. And I think the model that she establishes where uh, she tries to determine sort of how coup proofing and external threats influence military organization is, is quite is quite interesting. Um, I'm also sort of a big fan of, you know, some of these, these books on um, sort of superpower competition uh, and sort of ground. So I think you know, I don't necessarily agree with all of the uh, the evidence and the, the conclusions. I think Michael Beckley's book Unrivaled is quite a very nuanced, data-rich uh, analysis of uh, the basis of power in the U.S. and China. Um, and then outside of political science, I'm a big fan of science fiction. Um, I think yeah. Peter F. Hamilton is great. I'm a big fan of Isaac Asimov's Foundation series. Uh, so I guess I'll, I'll throw that in as well, because I think sometimes getting out of the nitty gritty theoretical debates and having sort of your mind expanded 
and these sort of grand political dramas can help you come up with research questions and just give you a unique perspective on the world. So I'm a big, big advocate of, of fiction as well. Yeah. There you have it, folks. Seriously, list those books down, read them, get them off Amazon, download them to your Kindle. Uh, yeah, all great books, especially the Caitlin Talmadge one. Um, as you know, Sam, obviously I wrote my uh, GSSR piece on the Venezuelan military uh, using the using the Talmadge book, but uh, I don't know, I guess for any aspiring dictators out there who are willing to secure regime uh, regime survival, it might be a might be a good read for you. I'm not sure. <laughs> exactly, um, yes. Yeah. And um, yeah, so Sam, so let's, uh, yeah, let's pivot to sort of the topics that you specialize in, uh, particularly when it comes to the field of European security. Um, so I'm going to just throw a sort of a broad curveball here at you. Um, so basically, I know that in 2012, um, the Obama administration sort of, you know, announced this sort of pivot to Asia, marking sort of this beginning of a, a greater emphasis and focus on long-term competition with China and the Indo-Pacific. Um, and granted, when it comes to sort of force planning issues within the U.S. military, yeah, we've seen a lot of the assets go toward that region. Um, but I guess specifically from a European context, do you think that this uh, pivot, um, do you think it affected sort of U.S. long-term focus on Europe in any significant way? Do you think that Europe was, in a manner of speaking, slighted by the Indo-PAC focus? Or do you think that um, policymakers still, uh, still view the European theater as a strategically important uh, area that still also warrants uh, equal attention to the Indo-Pacific? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's, it's tough because I think, um, you know, it's hard to know exactly what European leaders were thinking uh, at the time. And I'll, obviously a lot has evolved since, uh, since 2012. I do think there was a bit of concern among some Europeans and concern that maybe the U.S. was, um, you know, was, was losing focus and attention on Europe. And I think Europe has sort of this insecurity. I mean, I think there's a very complicated relationship that maybe, maybe we can get into a little later. Uh, on the one hand, Europe is, is very sort of perennially concerned about American abandonment. And on the other hand, they're kind of also um, frustrated by sort of overbearing American uh, diktats that they don't necessarily agree with. And so sort of finding a, a balance there is, is always difficult. But I think in particular, you know, the, the fact that it was rebranded, right, from a pivot to Asia to a rebalance toward Asia was indicative of sort of an American, um, sort of a change in strategy, at least rhetorically, because I think there was some, some feedback from Europeans that say, so where are you pivoting? You're pivoting um, after the, um, you know, allegations of Russian meddling uh, in the 2016 election. Um, I think people were, uh, in, in the U.S., were, were becoming more sort of cognizant of the ongoing security challenges that still exist in Europe. And at the same time, I think you see European countries uh, attempting to basically find a niche for themselves in Asia, right? So the, uh, the U.K., for example, it's working up its uh, carrier strike group based around the Queen Elizabeth, and its inaugural deployment is going to be to the Asia Pacific. Uh, France as well, of course, has some territories in the South Pacific, and it has a sort of naval and garrison presence there. Um, 
And even the Germans have floated around some ideas of sending perhaps a frigate or something to uh, support a phone ops uh, down in the South China Sea, although whether they go through with that or not is, you know, very much up in the air. But, you know, the Germans are very reticent to flex military might these days. So even even just discussing it, I think, is is uh, a very sort of provocative statement, at least in the context of Berlin. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think I do think there was some frustration, but I debated uh, some European rethinking regarding how they can fit themselves into a new Pacific-oriented American strategy. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, and I think, Sam, your comments sort of kind of bring to light um, sort of Europeans' issues with sort of Chinese political influence in the region. I know that uh, based on the sort of uh, the, the CCP sort of united front policies and just sort of political outreach to ensure that uh, governments in these different countries are like, um, if not if not friendly towards Chinese policies, at least indifferent uh, to what China does. Um, I think. Do you think that the Europeans are starting to coordinate a more sort of coherent, unified response to um, to CCP influence in Europe? What, what does that look like from your perspective? Gradually, yes. I so I do think Europe is becoming increasingly uh, sort of cognizant of the strategic threats that China poses, um, but I think it faces. Uh, some major barriers that the U.S. doesn't. And I think, you know, primarily the advantage that the U.S. has is that it is a unified single country um, with an enormous uh, sort of economic footprint. And so the U.S. is able to engage in economic statecraft in a way that Europe is not, uh, simply because while Europe's, you know, the EU's aggregate economy is quite large and indeed its population are larger than the United States, um, it's very fractious and internally divided. Um, and so I think there is a big divide between uh, countries that have sort of moralistic uh, reasons to oppose China. So for example, Sweden is very uh, vocal about its opposition to uh, the treatment of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. And they also took a stand uh, over the sort of repression in Hong Kong. Uh, and France to a degree, as well as the UK have also uh, issued some rebukes. Of course, even in those cases, right, there's some hedging, right? The UK was a little uncertain what it wanted to do with Huawei for a while. It eventually ended up deciding to remove Huawei infrastructure from its uh, telecommunications network. But that was a sort of long drawn out process. And then you sort of have countries like Germany that are big trading nations that have economic ties. Um, you know, obviously Germany has some discomfort with China given its own history and sort of the, the, the feeling that of an obligation to stand up against genocide and, and authoritarianism. But at the same time, you know, the automotive industry is very powerful. Manufacturing in general, Germany is very powerful and they exert a lot of pressure that I think retards uh, Germany's ability to kind of keep up with the leading countries in calling out China. Honorable countries are those that have uh, sort of come out really hard hit from the debt crisis from a decade ago. So Greece, Italy in particular, but I, I think Greece is, is particularly uh, indicative of the sort of the sort of techniques that China uses. Um, for example, uh, Chinese, some Chinese owned company, I believe bought the port of Piraeus just outside of Athens. And uh, the EU gave Greece some, some flack for this, but of course the Europeans didn't wanna really bail out the Greeks. That was a whole saga, you know, that's completely outside of the security realm, but I think there are, there are linkages there. Um, you know, a lot of these in, in more debt ridden countries say, if we can't rely on our own sort of European union, then we have to go to outside options to, to get finance. And that is China. Um, so like I said, I, I think Europe is gradually converging toward uh, a position that's a little bit more hardline on China, certainly not at the American level, um, but I do think there's a growing awareness, but it's going to be a slow and drawn out process just because the the incentives facing the countries of Europe are quite, um, are quite different. And so, 
you're not going to be able to get the same kind of unified response as you could from the you know 50 united american states uh, that are tied into a single government gotcha yeah and um i'm glad you brought up greece because this is actually a nice segue into another question i had um and particularly this also deals with um issues of unity within the nato alliance um obviously i'm pretty sure you've heard of the it's just sort of the the Greco-Turkish sort of um, disputes going on in the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, and just how overall, if we were just to speak about Turkey by itself, Turkey sort of being like this uh, sort of maverick renegade member of NATO who's been engaging in interventions in Libya, Syria, and most recently allegations that it sent Syrian mercenaries to the disputed Nagorno-Karabakh region in the Caucasus. Um, yeah, so how... So what, like, what's your sort of take on what's been going on within NATO, the sort of fraying of the alliance? And I guess in addition to the context of the Trump administration wanted to withdraw uh, 12,000 troops from Germany, it seems like many have begun to question whether this, whether sort of NATO is in its death throes at the moment. Yeah, yeah, no. So it's, it's a huge topic and uh, one that, you know, I, I don't think any one person can adequately, uh, adequately cover, but I think you're right. I think NATO is in a, in a tough spot right now. But it's of course worth noting that NATO has always been in, in a sort of politically contentious environment. It's always, there's always been concerns whether the Euro missile crisis of the eighties, uh, sort of the nineties, finding a new mission for NATO, you know, um, having to rebrand or go out of business effectively. Um, and a whole number of other crises, you know, from the Berlin crises to, uh, to other incidents during the cold war um, and so I, I think you need to take these sort of apocalyptic claims about the death of the alliance with a grain of salt. Um, but I think you're right. There are certainly challenges. And I think Turkey is maybe one of the biggest at the moment. I mean, of course, historically, Turkey was important because the Bosphorus Straits were a way to bottle up the Soviet Black Sea fleet. Um, and so there was an immense strategic value to having Turkey in the alliance because that gave NATO a large degree of sort of uh, maritime control in the Mediterranean. And now, um, you know, I, I I haven't looked at the recent Black Sea Fleet disposition. I'm fairly confident NATO's naval, uh, you know, task groups could handle the Russians in some kind of conflict in the Mediterranean. And so Turkey is not so important in that regard. And I think now its, it's value is more, its connections to the Middle East, obviously an area that has uh, seen a lot of NATO action over the past two decades. Um, but even there, as you as you note, right, Turkey is frequently at, at cross purposes with a lot of the NATO countries. Um, it has sort of, you know, it's a, a Muslim majority country. Um, and so it has a sort of connection with the region uh, religiously that most, you know, pretty much that no other NATO country uh, does. And Turkey is also sort of an outlier because it's not in the European Union. And so there's sort of a European aspect to NATO that Turkey has kind of always been um, trying to brand itself with, but largely unsuccessfully. And so I think now what you're seeing is the culmination of these cleavages um, that, that have created problems. Um, so for example, uh, Turkey, as you point out, is sending Syrian mercenaries allegedly uh, to, to fight in this uh, dispute between Armenia and Azerbaijan, but also there's been allegations they've been sending Syrian fighters to Libya as well. So they're sort of weaponizing these groups that American policymakers view largely as, as terrorists um, and that's very complicated. And then on top of that, you have the, the historic enmity between Greece and Turkey that goes back, you know, millennia. Uh, but, but, you know, really, I think is more of a product of the end of the Ottoman uh, period and uh, irredentism and revisionism in both of those countries. 
And you have sort of the dispute now in the Aegean over oil drilling and uh, resource rights there. And I think NATO there also doesn't really know what to do because these are two members of the alliance. France seems to want to take a really strong stand. Berlin seems more apathetic. Washington, I have no idea what the Americans want to do because I haven't seen any kind of statements uh, from the US side really at all. And so I think you're right that there is just sort of this, there's a lack of focus. And I think part of that is simply because the there is no unifying threat, uh, you know, to the alliance the way the Soviets were. I think there's different threat perceptions between Eastern Europeans who are still very concerned about Russia and Western Europeans who are much more sort of dismissive of the threat posed by Putin. Um, and then you have differences too with, uh, you know, the Turks having their preferences in the Middle East, the Americans getting uh, increasingly frustrated with low European defense spending and getting sort of more fixated on the threat from China. And so I do think there are some structural issues that are facing the alliance right now. And it'll be very interesting to see how it plays out. But I, I would caution anyone from assuming that NATO is dead because I do, I do think it has a remarkable ability to regenerate itself and create new missions and identities. Now, Sam, I honestly wish more policymakers and uh, pundits would share more of that optimism. Uh, it just seems like I, I just I feel like the human tendency is to just automatically sort of weep and, you know, weep on the ground, sort of wailing as uh, these different sort of issues come up. But yeah, I, my hope, too, is that, yeah, definitely we don't we don't uh, take these apocalyptic um, sort of ruminations about NATO so seriously. Mm -hmm. But knowing that, you know, every alliance, I think that the U.S. has been in has had its hard moments, its ups and downs. So hopefully, even though we're in a troll, we're hopefully we'll be able to claw our way back up. Hopefully, that is hopefully. Hopefully, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Sam, let's, um, I guess, let's switch over to, I guess, because you specialize also in nukes and proliferation sort of stuff. Um, I don't know if you saw the news recently about the START agreement um, mm -hmm. and how I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe Russia and the United States reached a sort of uh, a year-long sort of freeze on yes. the acquisition of the warheads. Um, yeah, cause, so could you just walk us through that? Like, what, what is the significance of the START treaty? When it comes to uh, U.S. sort of Russia competition, uh, what should we make of this recent sort of compromise that was reached? Um, and yeah, what can we expect for the future of nuclear arms control? Yeah, uh, that is another another great giant question. Uh, so I will clarify. I actually I have not um, checked in the past few days. I know the Russians proposed a one year extension. Um, I haven't seen confirmation the U.S. agreed to it. But if, if you have if you've heard that, then that's probably correct. Um, well, actually, yeah, I guess a clarification or a clarification. I'm not sure if they confirmed it either. I okay, believe it okay. So it's put on the table for now, yeah. We know for sure the Russians have proposed it, whether or not the yeah. U.S. has accepted it. I'm not, I'm not 100%, so I'm not going uh, to to make any any predictions in that regard. But I do think uh, START is it's another it's sort of another treaty that is a bit, it's very valuable, but it also is somewhat anachronistic. You know, so in many ways, I think START, uh, New START is, is suffering the same kinds of issues that the alliance, the NATO alliance broadly is suffering, which is just that, it was designed in a different period. And while it still has immense value um, in terms of capping nuclear competition and importantly providing information, I mean, I think that is fundamentally the most uh, valuable aspect of the treaty is just that it creates a way to um, reveal the, the capabilities and size of the American and Russian nuclear arsenals, which I think is stability enhancing because it reduces the risk. Um, and of course, and it's also verifiable. So there's mechanisms in place for both sides to confirm the information that's being provided. Um, so I think the, the primary value there is A, it, it provides a lot of useful intelligence for American allies that don't necessarily have the same kind of uh, intelligence capabilities that the US does. 
and it gives them some confidence that they they know the relative sort of nuclear threat dimension from Russia. So a lot of the smaller European countries, I think, see a lot of value in this treaty. Um, and on top of that, I think it is it is stabilizing insofar as it um, it caps the number of warheads and it, and it reveals information. So the the risk of some kind of like secret arms race or like you know Russia sprinting to nuclear superiority and the U.S. not knowing it um, and all the sort of instability that, that would engender. Is, is, severe, is severely reduced in a world where you have this sort of open free sharing of nuclear information um, regarding arsenal size and that kind of stuff. So I do think it's valuable to keep the treaty in place. And I think Trump's uh, team has, um, I'm not really sure, they have this sort of strange negotiating strategy because they have been putting a lot of what I view to be poison pills into the negotiations. But at the same time, they, they do seem to be genuinely interested in reaching some kind of agreement. So it doesn't, it doesn't seem like they're actively trying to sabotage the whole agreement, but it seems maybe that they're sort of playing their hands. They, they assume maybe they have a stronger hand they do. I'm not, I'm not really sure, but I am, I'm hardened to see the one year extension offered by the Russians. Now one caveat of course, is as far as I know, this would just be a political commitment. There would, no, there would not be any verification aspects right. to it. Right. Um, and so potentially that would be less, uh, less valuable because there would always be the nagging suspicion that maybe there was some cheating. Of course, the Russians have already violated the INF treaty, um, and that which of course precipitated the American withdrawal of that of that treaty as well. So I, it's not as good as if we had an actual verifiable treaty, um, but I do think it's it's valuable. Now, the one additional thing I will add um, is simply that I think China is a complicating factor, like everything right. with European politics right now, yeah. and it's because China is not a signatory to the treaty, uh, as I'm sure many of the listeners will, will already know. And that's complicated because on the one hand, China does, as far as we know, have a significantly smaller arsenal, uh, nuclear arsenal than the US or Russia. Right. And so it has some right to argue that it doesn't need to be a, a member of this treaty, party to the treaty. Uh, but at the same time, as China increasingly expands its military capacity and increasingly comes into an antagonistic relationship with the US, I think the US rightfully is, charting, is, is, is hoping to reorient its arms control and military treaties and strategies to prioritize China, not Russia. And so in a world where it's constrained by the Russians and China is not constrained in the same way to expand its arsenal, I think there's going to be growing concern in DC that we're basically fighting with one of our hands behind our back due to the Russians and that might disadvantage us in Asia. Um, so to be quite honest, uh, I'm not an expert on, on sort of Chinese arms negotiations, I, but I get the sense China is not at all interested in, in being a member of New START or any other kind of nuclear arms control treaty. So I do think no matter how this ultimately plays out with Russia, this is going to be a, a continual issue that's going to create strain um, because there's no obvious way to balance the European and the Pacific sort of Indo-Pacific uh, security elements of nuclear arms control. Yeah, no, thanks for those insights, Sam. That was really, no, that was really great. And I think, uh, it's kind of funny because I, it kind of reminds me of the anecdote I think of, um, I guess this was for one of the start negotiation meetings and then the, the representative set up a table for China to come and yet the table remained empty because like you mentioned, China was just not willing to, to partake in these negotiations whatsoever. And I think, yeah, your comments speak to a broad point, I guess with like IR theory about any game theory just overall of just sort of like the backstabbing nature, just like you're right. It's like for the United States, great power competition has more heavily focused on the China aspect, but sort of how you mentioned with like having one hand tied behind our back, I feel mm -hmm. like the Trump administration is just very fearful of while we're sort of preoccupied with the Russians at the negotiating table, China will somehow pull a, a security dilemma sort of while you were wasting time with Russia, <laughs> look at us, we expanded the arsenal. 
So if, it's almost like it's, it's this weird complicating factor with triangular diplomacy and mm -hmm. almost like, yeah, two, two front competition, so to speak. No, I think you're absolutely right. I think that is honestly, uh, ironically, actually, it may be a, a, a branch of, of IR that's a bit under underdeveloped. Um, you know, there's all these great discussions of bipolarity and multipolarity and the, the relative stability and durability of those kind of orders. There's relatively less on tripolarity. And I think you're right. It is sort of an interesting variance of the security dilemma where it's not even two states misperceiving, but there's like a third complicating state that shifts the balance and has sort of spillover consequences for the other bilateral relationship. Um, and I think, you know, there's, there's really a lot of interesting questions there. Like, what do you do when one threat is more of a security threat, uh, but the other is more advanced and sort of the pacing threat? You know, what are the implications there for instability? So you know, I, I do think it's a very policy relevant, but also sort of uh, theoretically interesting question that, that I wish more people would work on. Um, certainly, certainly valuable in the context of this conversation to have some more sort of uh, data and sort of theory to undergird our interpretations. Right. And funny enough, I think, honestly, I think the ultimate insult uh, from on Beijing's end would be if it requested observer status at these talks <laughs> and nothing else, just to just to look, you know, no substantive negotiations or discuss, discussions, just, you know, just there, check things out, no commitments, nothing of that sort. Yeah, that would that would be a great that would be great. I mean, because I, like you said, I, that flag that flag thing I think was a, a very uh, nice little troll move by the Americans. I think an observer uh, status would be would be an excellent uh, excellent comeback uh, by Beijing. So we'll see how this sort of trolling escalates, perhaps. But for sure. yeah, yeah, and yes, yeah, Sam, on this topic of just nukes and stuff, let's uh let's pivot over to the to the Iran region. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so, and then sort of just taking the European US context into this, we know that uh, very recently the UN arms embargo on Iran expired, um, which for, I guess, for a lot of the anti-Iran hardliners within the Trump administration, just completely night, complete nightmare. Um, just this fear that um, now Iran will start to export more arms and even import arms from adversaries like Russia and China to enrich themselves militarily. Um, but I think, I think it points to the fact that there's also a bigger issue too in terms of allied coordination on the Iran issue. Obviously, the United States and Europe haven't exactly seen eye to eye when it comes to strategies of, you know, either containment of Iran, engagement, whatnot. And I guess sort of with this expiration of the arms embargo, uh, yeah, where do we go from here? What, what do the dynamics of US-Europe in interaction look like when it comes to the Iran-JCPOA issue? Uh, all the tough questions you have. Um, I yeah, I mean, so I think, um, to be honest, I think a lot depends on the outcome of the election, because I think Biden uh, and Trump have very different views on how to handle Iran and how to leverage uh, European allies uh, to do so. Um, and so I'm, I'm wary to sort of pontificate until I actually know how the election plays out. Um, but I do think that there is an appetite in Europe to, to deal with Iran in a way that is maybe more aggressive than it appears at the moment, because I think Trump has sort of gone to such an extremely aggressive position that Europe has, I think, been forced to take to sort of try to balance that out with a more uh, Pacific, uh, you know, in my opinion, reasonable approach to Iran. But I do think there is there is interest there. I mean, so for example, uh, back around Christmas time uh, last, I guess, end of 2019, early 2020, seems forever ago now because this is, this is largely pre-COVID, unless you were you were in China. Um, 
but of course there was the uh, the big incident with the uh, assassination of Qasem Soleimani in Iraqi territory and some Iranian um, retaliatory actions, including uh, some missile strikes on American forces in, in Iraq. And so, you know, I think it's interesting you see the Europeans um, were, were directly involved in that, right? Like there were European soldiers uh, sort of co-located with the American forces on those, those Iraqi military facilities. And there's also a large uh, European reliance on Middle Eastern oil. And so they are also vulnerable to disruptions in the Strait of Hormuz. And indeed the US sent, or not the US, excuse me, the UK sent uh, one of its sort of, uh, one of its new Type 45 destroyers to the region to escort uh, uh, British maritime uh, vessels to, to get in and out of the Straits and avoid harassment by the Iranians. And of course, Macron as well, uh, President of France has insinuated and in statements throughout the past several years that he shares Trump's concerns about the sunsetting of the JCPOA um, and wants to come up with a more permanent framework to constrain Iran's ability to sprint to a nuke, so to speak. But he's not comfortable uh, doing it in the way that Trump has uh, has attempted to do so, sort of unilaterally ripping up the agreement, um, while still some for some reason claiming the Iranians are are obligated to to comply. I mean, I'm not really sure what the legal argument is there, but I think. Um, I think in the world where Trump wins in the next three years, we're going to see the same kind of bickering and internal um, chaos within the U.S. Uh, European partnership on Iran, and I think that would in, that would enable Iran to perhaps continue to play each other, uh, play the sides off each other uh, to its advantage. I think a Biden administration interested in reshoring uh, or shoring up relations with the Europeans might be more amenable to a kind of cooperative approach, what that would look like in practice, I'm not really sure, but I would be slightly more optimistic in that scenario, I think, uh, than in a, in a world in which Trump were to win, uh, simply because I think Biden would work more closely to coordinate with the Europeans. Um, but again, even in that world, there's no guarantee of success. So I think it's something exactly. that I kind of have to wait and see how it plays out. Yeah, and I think most emblematic of this sort of US-European tension over, over the Iran situation is just the, I guess, um, the EU's establishment of the INSTEX program, I think it's mm -hmm. an instrument in support of trade exchanges. Like even that, just almost like setting up a, a direct mechanism to directly defy U.S. sanctions. I wonder what, you know, what would be the fate of that program? As you mentioned, depending on how the presidential election goes, like whether it continues to be successful or not. And yeah, it's just, it just seems so, um, it's just the sort of this, uh, the Euro-Atlantic community, uh, just the fractious just the fractious nature of just dealing with uh, joint issues together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a great point uh, that you raised with sort of financial transactions. And it is a little bit outside my, my area of expertise, so I should tread carefully. But I, but I do think you raise an interesting point. Of course, uh, Dan Dresner's written on this, that um, an overuse of sanctions and embargoes ultimately results in the targeted states uh, developing alternate uh, access to resources or financial networks. And right now, the U.S. is blessed in that it sort of has de facto control of the SWIFT network, um, and so it controls a lot of sort of financial uh, linkages and sort of uh, wiring of, of, of uh, payments uh, between banks and other uh, financial facilities. So, um, you know, I think there is a risk that if the U.S. uses this too aggressively, including as allied, uh, allied nations, companies, and interests, there will be a growing um, aversion to simply letting the U.S. kind of have complete control over the world's finance, uh, financial networks. And, um, you know, maybe there will be a greater interest in setting up alternate payment mechanisms. I think the upfront uh, costs to establish those are quite high. Um, again, I'm not, a, not an expert on this by any means, 
But I do suspect that once they get up and running, they're going to probably be around for a while. So I do think the U.S. needs to tread carefully and apply sanctions judiciously, especially when it comes to our allies, because if we lose them, then our economic weight and our financial power is significantly diminished, I think. Right. And you heard folks, uh, sanctions policy is hard. Put that in your bumper sticker or your laptop sticker, whatever floats your boat. Uh, yeah, Sam, for our last question, this is a, this will be a historically related question. All right. Uh, but yeah, so recently, uh, Xi Jinping was giving a speech in China uh, commemorating uh, the PLA's intervention in the Korean War at the 70th anniversary, I believe. Um, and basically, sort of interesting because he was using the Korean War uh, or evoking memories of it to mobilize China for great power competition, saying that just as how the brave Chinese people's volunteers, you know, intervene in Korea to confront the so-called American imperialists, like we can use the same attitude, um, you know, to engage in external <clears throat> threats against the current Chinese state. Um, so yeah, it just brings up this broader question, like, um, yeah, what do you think about this topic of sort of authoritarians, uh, not just Xi Jinping, maybe Vladimir Putin, maybe, uh, you know, maybe Hassan Rouhani or Ayatollah Khamenei in Iran. Uh, yeah, like just the tool of, of evoking historical memory as a mobilization tool. Uh, what are the sort of the effects in the sort of different directions you can go with that? Yeah, that's, that is very interesting. Uh, I, to be honest, I don't have one easy answer to you. I haven't given this question much thought, but I do think it's worth, it's worth, it's worth sort of questioning. Uh, I think the, the, the value of this simply because obviously China today is very different from China 70 years ago um, in terms of both its, its power, but also in terms of what people expect from the government. Um, and I think this is, this is probably similarly true in Russia and Iran or whatever. I mean, it's very easy right, to glorify um, the past in the abstract. Um, but I do think whether you can sort of operationalize that, that sentiment into something tangible is, is a much bigger question. And I'll just say, um, to sort of give you a, a cop-out answer since I don't have a great, great response for you, is just that living in the UK now, you see a lot of the sort of politicians here invoking the blitz when they discuss coronavirus. It's sort of this abstract notion that we survive the blitz and therefore we can get through anything. And there's sort of a conflation of the threats posed by, uh, you know, an imminent Nazi invasion and, and airstrikes and that kind of stu uh, stuff and a, and a uh, health pandemic uh, or, you know, a public health crisis. And so, so I, I do think it is maybe uh, more tenuous than some of these leaders um, imagine. I, I, I'm not really sure because I think, you know, with China in particular, they're very good at sort of manipulating uh, history and, and Korea. I mean, all of Asia, right, has because of World War II and other, and other historical grievances has all, all manner of things that they can accuse each other of, uh, of doing that, that violates their honor or dignity or whatever. Um, and I think that these countries uh, have been very strategic in employing these to differing degrees, you know, vis-a-vis -vis Japan, for example. So Mao famously, um, at the end of sort of the beginning of the rapprochement with, uh, with the US under Nixon, and then, you know, of course, carried through by Carter, he was meeting with the Japanese and they were, you know, understandably somewhat uh, uh, sensitive and a bit, a bit uh, apologetic. And he said, oh, water under the bridge, you know, we've all done bad things, you know, the question is the future. And now, of course, you see a return to the kind of nationalistic um, fixation on Japan as the enemy, Japan as the historical uh, aggressor who committed great crimes against China, which of course is true. I mean, they, they did commit uh, horrific acts against the, the Chinese and the Koreans. Um, but I think 
you know, there's a question of if you keep if you keep rebranding this, if you keep redeploying it and forgiving, and then all of a sudden returning to the same grievance, how how plausible is it? How much does it match the uh, the sort of facts on the ground, right? I think there is somewhat of a parallel with this sort of debate about uh, resolve and in international relations and credibility, right? Like, to what degree is your your statements of and your past actions useful? Your past exploits and sort of national honor, um, when the facts on the ground today are so very different. Uh, so I'm a bit skeptical, but this is far outside my area of expertise. So you should just take this as a semi-informed musings of, of a disinterested uh, sort of outsider, not not an expert by any stretch. Well, Sam, for a semi-informed perspective, that was brilliant, man. <laughs> well, thank you. I think, uh, yeah, turn that into an op-ed or something. Just, <laughs> just, yeah, we listen to this podcast and then just write it down for the transcript. Uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, that was our first episode. Sam, thanks for joining us uh, for uh, this, this podcast episode. Hope you all learned a lot. We've got a lot more episodes coming uh, for the Precision Guided Podcast. And hopefully, yeah, definitely we'll be able to have more informative conversations on national security, history, economics, you name it, in the months to come. Sam, thanks again for joining us. Thanks so much, Josh. It was great. And I absolutely look forward to listening to your future podcasts and future guests. I think I'll learn a lot. Sounds awesome. Great. Take care. Thank you.